This is the greatest hour to follow Jesus. Isn't this exciting? I don't know if, if you guys kind of feel this, but um, I preach in a lot of places around the world, a lot of settings that are much, much bigger than this, sometimes with hundreds of thousands of people. But there's something about being in the midst of a seed that's been planted where God is doing something that's organic and supernatural, and you feel like you're a part of a movement. And that's what I sense here. That's what I love, why I love coming here, because I really believe that God is getting ready to do something in Orlando, in Jesus' image, in, the, in, in America, and we are right on the cusp of that wave. Those of you here in this room, those of you that go to Jesus School, how many of you are in the school? Okay, you are in the right place at the right time. And if you go back through history, I mean, can you imagine what it would have been like if you had the opportunity to be in Los Angeles, California at the turn of the last century and you were able to be at Azusa Street and part of what God is doing? You, had, you would have had no idea how significant that was. And what God was going to do with that and how history would be made. And how a hundred years later we'd still be looking back at that as a defining moment in the history of the church. I believe that we could be in a moment like that right here today. And, and I don't know if, if we'll be around for a hundred more years. But I'll tell you what, I believe that God, what God is doing today is going to make all other moves of the spirit in history pale by comparison. We are living in the greatest days in the history of the world. So don't ever take this for granted. Don't ever get bored. You know, I was a part of the Brownsville Revival. I was there virtually every night of the week for three years. Um, I was there really on and off from the very beginning to the very end. That's where I met my beautiful wife, Rebecca, who had to take our rambunctious child out. Uh, he, he's only one. We don't think he's born again yet, so you have to have be patient with him. We're still interceding, praying for his soul. But... Um, she, anyway, my wife is my souvenir from Brownsville. Uh, I got the best one of all. And, uh, you know, when I look back at those days, one of the things that fascinates me is that I thought in those days that that was normal. I thought I was living a normal Christian life. And it wasn't until years afterwards when I came out of that environment and I looked back, I realized that was not normal. That was really, really wild and amazing. And I wished that I would have had the wisdom in those years to really absorb it all and to enjoy it and to live in the moment. Because you can get so swept up in, in you know, paying the bills and getting to the meetings on time and doing this and taking care of your chores. And there's these little relational things that happen. And in the midst of it all, you're missing the big picture. That God has you in, a, in an amazing time and place in your life. So I would just encourage you to really enjoy this, especially those of you that are in the school. Really, really enjoy it and soak it up. And I just want to also say to Michael and Jess, thank you guys so much for the heart and the love to be able to put something like this together. It's amazing. I, I, know, I know you all realize it, but this is not easy, what they're doing. Um, you know, when, when I see Michael and Jessica's schedule, especially with, the, with Jesus School, 
And, and they haven't just hired some administrator and said, go run the thing while we travel the world. They're here. They're investing their blood and their sweat and tears and life into this. And so I really honor you guys and, and your whole staff is so amazing. We, we really honor you and the Lord. And uh, I'm, a, I'm just privileged to be a part of this whole thing. And I do feel like I'm a part of it. So I, w- I was here from the beginning and I don't get to come over here very often, but I'll always be part of what God is doing here. Um, one of the things that I so much appreciate about um, what's happening here is, you know, even, even tonight during the offering, as Michael was talking about the word in the scriptures, I believe that we're entering a season, like I, like I mentioned earlier, where God is going to be, and he already is, moving by his spirit in un- unprecedented ways. I think we're going to see gifts of the spirit being unleashed in, un- in dimensions that we've never seen before. And, and I could talk about that for a while. I, I, I'm not just saying that because it's like a, a, sounds like a cool thing to say. There are real reasons why I believe we're on the cusp of one of the greatest moves of signs and wonders and miracles and words of knowledge and prophecy and, and just miracles that will astonish masses, that will get the attention of the world. In the midst of this, there are dangers. And if you look back through church history at any move of the Spirit, you'll find that Almost all of them ended badly. Let me say that again. Almost all of the moves of God's spirit in history ended badly. And one of the reasons for that is that the dynamic aspect of the outpouring of the spirit is so attractive. And it's so interesting. That what happens is the attention and the focus of everybody begins to go in that way. And very quickly you get an unbalanced situation. And and it just creates its own momentum and the thing flips over. I was on a jet ski with, uh, I think you guys were over there, with Dave Popovici. Oh, okay, so I, who was on that jet ski? It was Eric? No, no, it was, it was two girls. It was Madison and um, Yaya, Dave's daughter. And I was the, driving the jet ski. And we got to this point where we were turning around in the jet ski. And both of the girls leaned in the same direction. And the whole thing just kind of did a spin down into the water and the thing capsized. And that's what happens is when you get the when you get lopsided weight. That's why the Bible talks about how unequal weights and unequal measures are an abomination to the Lord. Because those lopsided weights create a capsizing. And error comes in very quickly. And so in the midst of the moving of the spirit and in a very dynamic spiritual environment, it is very important that we keep our eyes and our focus on the important things, the things that got us here in the beginning. I was talking to Todd about this just yesterday. We talked on the phone for a couple of hours because they're seeing incredible things in, in their environment. And I said, Todd, the reason God is doing these things is because you have proven your faithfulness over many years. But don't allow the rewards that God gives you to distract you from the thing that brought you those rewards in the first place. It's so easy to do. And so I love how, Michael, even when you're talking about the offering, you're bringing in biblical truth. We've got to keep the word of God fundamental and foundational in everything that we do. We cannot afford to produce a bunch of people that can prophesy and speak in tongues, but they don't know how to find Ephesians in their Bible. It's serious. Like one of the things that makes me very uncomfortable about revival culture, can I be very real for, with you for a minute? And I know this is being broadcast. I'm, I'm going to be careful the way I say this. But I, I know people that are going to these places where God is moving. 
And they come back and they've got all this new lingo. You know what I'm talking about. And they, they have all these new ideas and they, they're, they're prophesying and they're speaking in tongues and they're doing all these things. But they don't know A, B, C about the word of God. They don't know about David and Goliath. They don't know about Jonah and the fish. They still think it's Moses and the ark. That's dangerous. It's dangerous. That's why, you know, I have family devotions together with my kids. And when we have devotions, I'm not teaching them how to prophesy. I'm talking to them about David and Goliath. Why? Because they need that foundation for everything else that God puts on top. And we all need it. And we've got to keep it in our environment. Now, if I, if I were to go to an environment where it was a bunch of stuffy, intellectual, cerebral, academic Christians that have no experience with the Holy Ghost, I wouldn't talk like this. Because they need something else. They need the experience. But when I'm in an environment like this, I'm going to go back the other way because we need word. We need truth. And we need to love it. And I'm so glad you're responding the way you are. Because in some environments, they think that truth is somehow opposed to spirit. I, I was, we were in um, Israel for a, our tour last year. And the tour, we were on one of the buses. And you know, God was doing amazing things on the trip. People were getting touched by God. People were getting saved in Israel. It was pretty amazing. And the tour guide was talking about uh, you know, Israel and biblical things having to do with the place that we were giving, like, this is what happened here. Jesus said this and did this. And there was a young lady in, in the bus that raised her hand, like she wanted to ask a question. And the tour guide called on her and said, what, what would you like? And she said, um, I wish that you would just stop talking about all this stuff. We just want to worship. And I was on the bus. I turned around and said, excuse me, let the man talk. Because sometimes you need, sometimes worship is not just songs. Sometimes you have to be able to worship in spirit and in truth. And sometimes without the truth, you're actually limited in your view of who God is. And if you're limited in your view of God, your worship is undeveloped. You see, you see in the, the Psalms, David says, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. You know what happens when you take a magnifying glass and you put it on something? You see more clearly what was already there. It's not that you're changing it in essence. It's the same. But your perception of it magnifies. And because of that, you're able to, to appreciate what you're looking at. So what happens when we, when we worship God is we're making him bigger in our own conscience. He's already as big as he gets. God fills the universe. But in our consciousness, we become more aware of him. And that awareness allows us to worship him. But without that awareness, we're very, very limited. Okay. Having all that to say, I want to I share um, something. I really felt like the Lord put this on my heart. And um, if you have your Bibles, go with me to the book of Luke chapter 5 and John chapter 21. So I'm going to preach a little bit. Is that okay? Or teach a little bit. Maybe I should call it teaching. And these are things... That I believe God is speaking to this community and to this movement. Now you realize those of you that live here, you are part of a community. And that's very, very precious. Those of you that are part of this community, you are part of a larger movement. That goes all over the world. We're all in this together. God's doing something amazing. So I believe that this is for this community specifically. 
And I think it's for our movement generally that spans around the world. And so we're going to read two passages of scripture. The first one is Luke chapter 5. And I'm going to um, then read from John 21. You have Luke 5 and then John 21. Now before I read it, I just want to point something out to you. These are two stories that have a, a couple of striking similarities you're going to notice. In fact, you may have read them in the past and thought you were just reading the same story in a different gospel. That's how similar they are. But actually, these are two totally different accounts. One that happened at the beginning of Jesus' ministry when he first picked his disciples, and one that happened at the very end after he had died on the cross and rose from the dead. Almost the exact same scene played out with some very interesting differences. So let's start with with, with Luke chapter 5. And I'll begin reading um, in verse 3. And he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's. And he prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. And when he had left speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a haul. And Simon answering said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and we have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this thing, closed a great multitude of fishes, and their net broke. And they beckoned to their partners, which were in another ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both of the ships, so that the ships began to sink. Okay, now let's turn to John chapter 21. And remember now, this is at the end, okay? This is... After Jesus had risen from the dead, he finds them fishing again. These guys really like to fish, kind of like Michael. John chapter 21, in verse 3, Peter said unto them, I'm going fishing. And they said to them, we will go with you also. And they went forth and they entered into a ship immediately. And that night they caught nothing. But when the morning had come, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not know that it was him. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any meat? And they said, no. He answered them, cast your net on the other side of the ship and you will find. And they cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw it in for the multitude of fishes. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he girded his fisher's coat around him for he was naked and cast himself into the sea. And when the other disciples came in a little ship, for they were not far from the land, but 200 cubits, dragging the net with the fishes... As soon as they were come to the land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid thereon, and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring the fish that you have caught. Simon Peter went out, verse 11, and drew the net to the land, full of great fishes, 153. And there were so many, yet the net was not broken. Okay, I want you to notice, we're going to talk about some of the differences here. But there's one main difference between these two stories. In Luke chapter 5, when they made their great catch of fish, it says the net broke. Everybody say the net broke. broke. But in John chapter 21, even though they made a greater catch than they did the first time, the net did not break. Everybody say the net did not break. And so I want to talk to you about three differences between the two stories that made sure that in the second account, the net did not break. And this is why I'm telling you this. Because I believe with all of my heart that we are in a moment and in a season of harvest in history. 
And that's why you're here. That's why you're in this room. That's why you're in this school. That's why you came from all over the world. Because you know that God is doing something in this hour and you want to be a part of it. And I believe that you are going to be a part of it. I believe you're going to make history. I believe you're going to win souls. I believe some of you are going to see millions of people come to Christ. If you believe it, say amen. Right here in the room, Michael Job is here. How many of you know Michael Job? Also known as Jesus. Michael just came back. Weren't you in Togo? How long ago did you come back? A, a month ago. And, and Michael was there preaching to people all over the place in the bush. Um, David Urson is here somewhere, I, I heard. Where's David? David, where, where did you just come from? Uh, Nigeria. Nigeria. Okay. So see, God has even in this room people that he's using in the world. This is just the beginning. It's just the beginning. But it is possible that... In your moments of greatest blessing and anointing, you encounter the most dangerous territory in your life. If you think that things are difficult right now, just wait until God begins to bless you. It's true. It's not, this is, I'm not just saying this. You might think it's crazy. You might think all I need is I need more money for my ministry. But if that's what you think, you need to... You need to listen to the wisdom of Biggie. More money, more problems. No, that's not in the Bible, but it's true. When God really begins to bless you, that's when the trouble starts. You think you have trouble now? Wait till a million dollar check comes to your ministry. And people in the staff have different ideas about what it's for and what, where it should be used and who should get it. Just wait. Wait until God begins to bring people around you and they want a piece of you and they want to be a part of what you're doing. Wait until people start to get jealous of the success that God is bringing into your life and they begin to connive and scheme about ways to bring you down to make them look better. All these things happen. You see, when God begins to bless, that's when things get really dangerous. And that's when wisdom is needed. Now, if you go to most Bible schools, they're going to tell you what to do when you fail. Because most people that leave Bible school are failures. But I believe that you are not going to fail. I believe you're going to succeed. And so I want to talk to you about what to do with with your success, not with your failure. So that your failure doesn't turn into a success. Or your success doesn't turn into a failure. Okay? I was a... I've been a part of of more than one movement that was incredibly blessed by God. And I saw how the nets broke. And I, I was up close and personal. It wasn't because of me, thank God. But I saw it so closely that I observed these things. I'm going to teach you some of these things today. Because what happens when the nets of your life or your ministry break is that things are lost that can never be recovered. Sometimes you've taken one step forward and you end up having taken two steps back. Sometimes you have less to show for yourself after your success than you had before it. And that the net, the sum total of all of your work and all of your effort and even all of the blessing of God amounts to negatives. That's, that's unacceptable. That's not God's plan for you. That's not God's best for you. And there are reasons why that happens, things that you can avoid. So I'm going to show you three differences between these two stories, three things that you can do to make sure that your nets never break. Number one. Look with me at Luke 5. Just keep your finger in the Bible. So you, you got it, Luke 5, John 21. We're going to flip back and forth 
I'll ask you to forgive me in advance for using so much scripture while preaching the word. Luke chapter 5, verse 7, look at what it says. And they beckoned to their partners, which were in another ship. Everybody say another ship. ship. All right, now look at John chapter 21 in verse 3. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to them, we will go with you. And they went forth and they entered into a ship. Everybody say a ship. How many of you know the difference between different ships and a ship? One is singular and one is plural. Somebody said the definition of fellowship is two fellows in the same ship. I believe that one of the greatest dangers in the Christian world when God begins to bless is divisions in relationships. Unforgiveness, bitterness, resentment, envy, jealousy, backbiting, gossiping. And even in an environment like this, it can happen. Even with the Holy Spirit moving. Miracles happening. Oh, the devil is not sleeping. And he knows that if he can find a way into your relationships, he can bring it all down. In fact, it's interesting that the word here that's used when it says that the net was not broken, it's the word schizo in Greek. Schizo. Now, some of you will recognize that word because it's the root word of our English word schism. And this is a word that we use, especially in English, to talk about fractures or tears in relationships, isn't it? In fact, how many of you know what the Great Schism is? The Great Schism was the biggest church split in history between the Catholic and the Orthodox Church. The Great Schism. It's right there in our language. You see, the devil knows that if he wants to tear your nets apart, if he wants to rob you of your harvest, if he wants to take away your fruitfulness, he can do it by bringing schism. How many of you are in the school again? Let me just see. All right, did I speak this week or was it last week in the school? Was it last week? Time flies. It's very busy. For for me, a week is like a month for most people. So forgive me if I sometimes forget what day it is. Um, I talked about this a little bit in the school. I want to I reiterate some of the things here because I think it's so important. And in the school, it was a response to a question. But I want to I just bring some of these things out because they're so important. You know, when you look at Ephesians chapter 4, you read about the five-fold ministry gifts. The apostle, prophet, pastor, teacher, evangelist. And was that all five? Yes. And so we sometimes, we think of these as five, like, competing ministries. And in fact, even if we don't think of it that way, that's the way it usually manifests. Have you ever noticed that, that you will very rarely find pastors and evangelists that get along? Have you ever noticed that? Another one is prophets. Now listen, I'm not a prophet. I can prophesy, but I'm not a prophet. And I will tell you that as an evangelist, or maybe it's not every evangelist, but it's this evangelist, I think prophets are wacky. I don't understand half the things they say. You know, I, I, I have dear, dear friends that are great prophets. I don't understand half the things they talk about. I just smile and nod. Most of the things that they think are prophetic, I dismiss as just, like, anomalies. Like, if I have a dream, my first reaction is it was the, it was the corned beef and cabbage I ate last night, not it was the Lord. 
if, if I see the same color three times in a row, it doesn't strike a chord in me. I don't look at the time every time I walk in my bedroom and mark it down. That's just not me. But there are people like that. that. Now, the tendency, the natural proclivity is for people like me to look at people like that and go, they're nuts. They're out of their mind. And reject them outright and dismiss what they have to say as foolishness. You know what I've come to discover as an evangelist? That the Lord will often speak to me in ways that I can dismiss as foolishness if I choose. So that in order to receive his blessing, I have to accept the offense that comes with it. This is the way it works. So the Lord will actually work with you in such a way that he expects you to humble himself to receive what he wants to give to you. And one of the ways he does that is by letting us work together with people that are different from us and that even their personalities and their gifts rub us the wrong way. Because it takes humility. See, you have to understand something. This is not an accident. This setup, this arrangement is not incidental. It was done this way on purpose. So when it says in Ephesians 4, read it yourself. When you go home, read the whole chapter. It's amazing. It says that when Jesus ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. And then it lists the, those five ministry gifts, the apostle, prophet, pastor, teacher, evangelist. What it is telling us is that these five gifts, these five expressions, they're not random. They are actually dimensions of Jesus' own ministry. Okay, so Jesus... I could lay this all out for you very, very clearly, but I don't think I need to. You understand. Jesus was the greatest pastor that ever lived, the great shepherd, the good shepherd. Jesus was the greatest prophet that ever lived. Remember when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration? Uh, who, who's with him? Moses and Elijah. The father says, shut up, listen to him. He's the greatest apostle that ever lived, the cornerstone of our faith. He's the greatest teacher that ever lived. He's the greatest evangelist that ever lived. He is the full expression of all the glory of God in one person. Okay, that's Jesus. Now Jesus dies. He rises from the dead. He ascends on high. He wants his ministry to continue on earth. He needs a successor on earth. So some people think he made Peter his successor, but that's not what he did. Ephesians tells us what he did. He took his ministry, and he, like a pie, he divided it up into 20% pieces. And he gave 20% to the apostle, 20% to the prophet, 20% to the evangelist, 20% to the pastor, 20% to the teacher. Why did he do it that way? Can I tell you something? There is no person in this room that will ever experience in their own ministry the fullness of what Jesus expressed. You just won't do it. Now, you can strive to do it. You can strive to be like Jesus. We all should. But you will never be Jesus. Okay? He'll always have it on you a little bit. I promise. So why does he distribute the gifts like that? Why doesn't he let anybody carry the whole thing? I've heard some people that say, I'm all five. I have all five ministry gifts. I said, no, you don't. That's not how it works. You don't get to have them all. They were split up on purpose. Do you know why they were split up? Listen, because Jesus knew that if the church was ever going to manifest his ministry on the earth, we would have to work with others. Because you have to understand this whole thing has been engineered from the beginning to be a body. It's the body of Christ. It's not the arm of Christ. We only are the body when we come together. And so that person that offends you, that person that does things a way that you dislike, what you don't realize is they have something that you don't have. 
It is actually the thing that bothers you about them. That is the very thing you need in your life. I talked a little bit about the gifts and grace. Let me just, let me just focus on this. It's so important. It says that, unto, and this is also in Ephesians 4. It says, unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. So what is, what does that mean? Think of it this way. Okay, let me say it again. Listen very carefully. Unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift. Okay? Grace can mean two things. Number one, it means unmerited favor. We're very familiar with that. By grace, you've been saved through faith. Okay? That's not what this verse is talking about. This means, this grace means supernatural empowerment. Okay, so think of it this way. Unto every one of us is given power according to the measure of the gift. So remember when you were a kid, how many of you remember uh, your Christmas or your birthday, you'd get a radio-controlled car. It required batteries. And you'd tear that thing open, and you'd see the little inscription on the box, batteries are not included. And you know that if your parents didn't get you batteries, Christmas was ruined. Because even Walmart's closed on Christmas. You had to have the batteries in order to use the gift. Now, God is, Jesus is, a perfect gift giver. And whenever he gives a gift, he always gives the batteries so the gift can work. And the batteries for the gift of God is grace. So what that means is when you have a person who has a different gift than you, they also have a different grace than you. That means there is a power at work in their life that is not at work in yours. And that is why they are able to do things with ease that look impossible or difficult to you. So much so you won't even understand how they're able to do it. I shared this, I think I shared this in the school that when early on when, when I got married, I had a couple of little kids and I was a pastor and I was starting to travel a lot at that time. And I would have these prophets, many of them, that said to me, the Lord spoke to us, your marriage is in trouble, your kids hate you, you're going to lose your family if you don't stop traveling. This happened several times. And it was strange to me because my marriage was great, my kids were great, everything was amazing. And, and it happened again and again and again. And I prayed. I said, Lord, what's happening? And then I saw what was happening. You see, those people, the pro- these prophets, they looked at me and they saw what I was doing and they projected their own weaknesses onto me. And they said, if I were to do what he's doing, my marriage would be in trouble. I'd lose my kids. It would be a disaster. And so they assumed, thinking it was prophetic. By the way, not every impression you have is prophetic. They assumed... And, and also, by the way, you don't have to accept what every prophet tells you. Yeah. Prophets are not there to be the guiding light in your life. If a prophet confirms what God is speaking, praise God. But don't live your life guided by prophets. That's not New Testament. You have the Holy Spirit with you. He will lead you and guide you into all truth. You don't have need that any man teach you, but the Holy Spirit, he'll be with you. He's your counselor. He's your teacher. Okay. Having said all that, well, what was I even talking about? Prop, what's that? Oh, grace. That's right. Thank you very much. You're taking notes there on the front row. Thank you. So the grace that was on my life was not on theirs. They didn't understand what I was able to do. You understand? So here, here's the amazing thing. I could talk about this all night. But Paul, he says to the Philippians, he says, because you have been partners with me, and he was actually talking about money in that context. But that aside, because of your partnership with me, he said, you have become partakers of my grace. So you realize that God has set this thing up in such a way that you can partake of the grace that's on somebody else's life. 
Isn't that amazing? And so that prophet that bugs you, the reason they bug you is because they have something you don't have. And the reason that they have what you don't have is because God needs you to work together. Imagine what would happen if all of the evangelists and the pastors stopped fighting and started working together. We'd win the world in like a weekend. We need each other. See, this is the foundation that you have to understand. If we're going to keep schism out of our community, we have to understand that those people that bug us are the ones we need the most. And if, if, if everybody bugs you, it's probably not them. It's probably you. <laughs> Simon the sorcerer. You remember the story? Simon the sorcerer wanted to buy the gift of God to lay hands on people for them to receive the spirit. He wanted to buy it with money. Peter rebukes him. And he says, I perceive in you there's a root of bitterness. You see, that root of bitterness, here's what happens, is that in a community where God is pouring out his spirit, it's very easy to look at somebody that has something you don't have and get jealous. And you begin functioning and performing out of a desire to prove yourself. And that root of bitterness corrupts everything. There are actually people that do prophesy, but they prophesy out of a bitter, corrupted fountain. And those, those prophetic words, I've seen, I've seen prophetic words do tremendous damage to people. Tremendous damage. And it's not even because the prophet was wrong. It's not even because the prophet didn't have a gift. I'm talking about people that had real gifts and had real insight into real situations But because that flowed out of a corrupted, bitter fountain, it hurt the people that they were prophesying to. This is why Paul, you you realize that that, um, when you read, how many of you know the love chapter, 1 Corinthians? Everybody reads the love chapter as a standalone treatise on love. Love is patient, love is kind. We have beautiful little songs about it. Do you realize that 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 chapter on love is sandwiched in between two chapters on the gifts of the Spirit? It's not, in, it's not accidental. Paul is talking about the gifts of the Spirit. He stops. He goes into a whole essay on love. Then he comes back to talking about the gifts. Why? Because he's saying that these gifts need to be operated within the framework of love or they will hurt people. These gifts are dangerous if they're not used right. It's like, a, it's like having a weapon in your hand or a power tool. They can do tremendous good. It can also hurt people if you use it wrong. Okay, so all of, this, all of this to say that what God is doing in, in our midst as he gifts people, as, you know, I, what I even feel like, like the Lord is going to do for some of us is he's going to give somebody a gift that you want to see how you act toward them. And your response toward them will determine what he does in your life. Because Michael was talking about sowing and reaping. You realize that that principle of sowing and reaping does not just apply to money. It applies to everything. If somebody has a gift that you want, rather than criticizing them and, and making them look bad so you look better, why don't you bless them? And say, Lord, I'm going to bless them, and I'm going to believe that what you've given them is going to come on my life also. See, that's love, and that's how this thing works. If you have bitterness, and, and if there's resentment, if there's unforgiveness, you've got to get it out. 
I mean, it's not a joke. It's serious. <clears throat> I, just, I just wrote a book on spiritual warfare. It's coming out a little bit later this year. And, um, it, it, you know, it was, I, I can't wait for, for you to get it because I saw things. The Lord showed me things that I've never seen in any spiritual warfare book or not even really on, on the radar of any spiritual warfare discussion I've had. But one of the things that I, that I wrote about in there, it's still so fresh in my heart, is the power of forgiveness and the danger of unforgiveness. Do you realize there's, there's this story that I'm sure all of you know the story where you remember there was the, the guy that owed money to his master and he couldn't pay it. it. It turned out to be like a $14 billion debt. The master forgives him, but then he goes out. He finds somebody that owes him money, grabs him by the throat, says, give me what you owe me. The guy can't pay him, so he has him thrown in prison. So then the master calls the first servant back. You know all the story, right? <clears throat> and he says, you should have forgiven him the way I forgave you. And then the master says this, take this servant and hand him over to the torturers, to the tormentors, until he's paid his debt. Do you realize that unforgiveness opens a legal right for tormenting spirits to come into your life? And no amount of prayer and fasting and rebuking and binding and loosening is going to get rid of those demons. You gave them a right to be there. There are people that are literally physically ill in their bodies. They suffer with all kinds of torment in their minds. They, They have real demonic issues. Not because... They, they play with a Ouija board because they will not forgive and they've intentionally given the enemy access to their heart. This is really important. This is why Jesus says, you, you might remember Jesus in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> By the way, how come we don't hear about the Sermon on the Mount anymore? You guys, when you preach, preach about Jesus. Say things Jesus would say. So Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he says this. He says, if you... Get to the altar of the Lord to offer your sacrifice. And there you remember that your brother has ought against you. Leave your gift at the altar. Go first and be reconciled to your brother. And then come back and offer your gift. I want you to think about this for a minute, how important this is. Christianity at its heart is about right relationships. That's it. You you think it's all this other stuff. Christianity is about one thing, right relationships. Right relationship with God first, right relationship with your fellow man, right relationship with yourself, even in the Sermon on the Mount, right relationship with your enemies. All of it matters. So what Jesus says is this. Think about this. He doesn't say, if you're in Starbucks waiting for your venti latte cappuccino with extra foam, and you remember that your brother has ought against you, go leave your Starbucks and go be reconciled. He doesn't say if you're sitting in the seat at the barber, the barber shop and there you realize that your brother has ought against you, get out of the barber chair and go be reconciled. He's not talking about something inconsequential here. He says if you are at the altar of the Lord about to offer your sacrifice, you see, you have to understand what he's saying. For a religious Jew, one time a year that Jew would be scheduled to have an appointment at the temple where he could offer a sacrifice. The Jew would wait all year long for that opportunity. When he got to the temple to offer a sacrifice, he would be in a long line. He would wait sometimes for days for his opportunity. When he stepped up to the altar, he represented not only himself, but his family. 
he was like the priest of his own family, about to offer a sacrifice for sins. It was the highest point in the spiritual life of a religious Jew. Jesus says, if you get to that place, the most important place in your life, and you realize that your brother has ought against you, there is something more important still. Leave your gift. Go and be reconciled. And listen, he doesn't just say, make a note of it in your iPhone. Take care of it when you get back. First thing. No, he says, abandon your gift. Do you know what that is? Do you understand? This is emergency protocol. This is, this is, remember when you were a kid and they were doing fire drills and they said, if that alarm goes off, leave everything. Get out. Don't grab your books. Don't grab your backpack. Just get out. Run for your life. That's what he's describing. Abandon your gift. Run for your life. There is something more important than even the altar of the Lord at that moment. It is reconciliation with your brother. You've got to take this so seriously because the devil is not playing games. And these little foxes that get in, my friend, they spoil the vines. They spoil the vines. You've got to be ruthless with them. And, and, and many of you here tonight, you're, you're, you're in the presence of the Lord. You're having a wonderful worship time. And, and, and I'm preaching so well. You're just having a great time. There's something more important than any of this. There's some of you that maybe you need to get up and dismiss yourself. And you need to go make a phone call. Because there's something even more important than your worship. More important than singing to the Lord. More important than coming to the altar. You need to be reconciled. And, and if there's a person in this room that you need to be reconciled with, before this night is over, don't, don't walk out those doors before you've gone to them and you've said, look, I've been jealous of you. I've been, I've, I've been bitter toward you. Please forgive me. You've got to get it out. Amen? Amen. Enough said about that? I want to just share one, one other little thing with you about that. I found this article in um, Reader's Digest years ago. You guys remember that? Reader's Digest? <clears throat> I liked Reader's Digest. The article was called, What is a Good Tree? And the article explained that when the roots of trees touch, there is a substance present that reduces competition between them. In fact, it said this unknown fungus helps to link roots of different trees, even of different species, together so that a whole forest can be linked together. If one tree has access to water, another to nutrients, and a third to sunlight, the trees have the ability to share their resources with one another. Isn't that amazing? That's how God created the universe. In a forest, they have all these trees. You think they're all competing. They're helping. That's why they all grow. Imagine what it would be like. I mean, just imagine this. We have one of, one of two things can happen. You can have a community where everybody competes for the spotlight. And one or two people emerge as the stars. Everybody else fades into oblivion, bitter and resentful. Or you can have a community where people rise together, and as they rise, they reach down. And they pull others up with them. They say, come on, let's do this together. And instead of one or two superstars, you get a forest of redwood trees that touch the world. You know, it's one of the things, I don't, regardless of what your take is on Bethel, it's one of the things I love about Bethel is that so many redwoods have grown up out of that place. It's, it's a testament to me of the way the leadership stewards the gifts in people's lives. 
They're, they're obviously not competing with them. They're giving them scope and room to grow. And imagine if we could be like that. Imagine if you, you get a little bit extra money on your missions trip. Instead of buying a first-class seat, you help out your friend that, that can't go. Imagine if you get a preaching opportunity to come ministry and say, I'm coming, but I want to bring one of my friends with me. Imagine if God gives you, you know, you, uh, the opportunity to go to a crusade on the other side of the world instead of just going and getting the pictures and putting them on your website. What if you take a few people with you and you share the experience together and all of you are able to enjoy the fruit that comes in? I mean, these things are going to happen and God is watching. All right, so the next thing. Let's look again at Luke chapter 5. I'm almost done here. The, the, the other, my other two points are not as long as that first one, okay? And believe it or not, I cut that thing in like a quarter. Luke chapter 5. So Jesus tells them to let down their nets. Everybody say nets. nets. But instead they let down their net. Everybody say net. net. How many of you know the difference between nets and net? One is singular, the other is plural. Think about this. So Jesus tells them, first of all, they've been fishing all night. These are professionals. They're not like, they're not like just, uh, you know, entertaining themselves. They know what they're doing. They've done this their whole life. Their dad was a fisherman. Their granddad was a fisherman. This is their whole world. They've been working all night and not had one fish. And now this dude randomly from the shore, doesn't even have his own boat, is now telling them how to do their job. Okay? Imagine this. Throw your nets, nets nonetheless. Not only does he tell them how to do their job, he tells them to do something extreme. Don't just put one net down. Put them all down. And these guys, I I don't know if they knew who Jesus was or not at that point. I'm, I'm not sure. But... I'm amazed they listened to him at all. But even so, they could not believe that he knew something they didn't know. And they certainly couldn't believe that anything was going to happen so significant that they'd need more than one net. And so they put down a net. And the reward, the blessing that they got for their obedience was so great that it destroyed them. See, God is going to speak to you. He's going to tell you things to do. And some of it's going to seem ridiculous. What you don't understand is that your half measure is more dangerous than your full obedience. Some people think, you know, if I get that stadium, I might go bankrupt. You might. But if you don't obey, it might be even worse. You guys had Ben Fitzgerald here a few weeks ago. How many of you are here when Ben spoke? I love that dude. That He's so... Radical. He's got faith that just makes me sit back and go, what's wrong with him? <laughs> Nobody's supposed to be that like that, you know? And I remember when, when they were doing their very first meetings in Nuremberg. <clears throat> this was the very first time that he did one of these Awaken Europe things. And um, it was actually Todd that called me and he said, hey, we want you to come join us. He said, the Lord spoke to us. We, 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 we had this uh, vision where we saw the stadium in Nuremberg, Germany, where Hitler used to have his youth rallies filled, filled. And the young people were going onto the streets and they were prophesying. And <clears throat> Remember, at this time, I'm the one that introduced Todd to Germany. He had never 
seen anybody before, and I convinced a pastor that I was speaking for to allow this dude with dreads to talk. He was brand new. Nobody in Germany knew who Todd White was, and even fewer people knew who Ben was. And so Todd calls me, and he tells me this thing. I'm like, under my breath, I'm kind of chuckling. I've spoken at the largest conferences in Germany for years, and if you get 10,000 or 12,000 people at a meeting, it's like epic, like front page news material. So I said to Todd, I said, okay, um, how many people does this stadium seat? 30,000. <laughs> More than double I've ever seen in Germany. I said, okay. I said, um, how much money do you have? No money. Okay, how much time do you have? We're going to do this in six months. I know you need like two years to pull off an event like that. We do these things all the time. I know what it takes. And then... And then um, I said to him, okay, who are, you, who are you hiring to organize this for you? Because you're going to need some amazing organizing team. He said, oh, no, we're just, you know, Ben, he's got some guys. We're just going to do it ourselves. <laughs> every answer that he gave me was wrong, 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 wrong. <laughs> and so he said, you, will you come and will you join us? And, and I, I agreed to it just because I loved them, because of the relationship. But I knew when I accepted that invitation, I knew I was going to walk into a stadium that seats 30,000 people, and there'd be 200 people sitting on the front one row. <laughs> I just knew it. But I was willing to suffer with my brothers, and so I accepted that invitation. Six months later, I walked into that stadium. There were people being turned away outside because there was not an empty seat. And, and you know, I felt almost rebuked in my heart because... I thought it couldn't be done. And I have more experience in these things than either one of those guys had. And I realized that what God is looking for is not somebody that's really smart. Not somebody that's really experienced. Not somebody that's got a lot of time. Not somebody that's got a lot of money. Not somebody that's got a lot of marketing power. He's looking for somebody stupid enough (laughs) that they didn't know it was impossible and they just said yes. That's all he needs. Obedience. And I wonder what would have happened if God gave them that vision of that stadium full, 30,000 people. And they said, that's amazing. God is speaking to us, but 30,000 is too many. Let's go to the biggest church, and we'll get 1,200 people. Can I tell you what? It would have been great. It would have been a great meeting. It would not have made an impact. There would be no Awakening Europe ministry. There wouldn't be these things going on nation after nation, filling stadiums all over the continent. It happened because somebody was willing to throw all their nets. Not one. I believe, this is what I believe, this is is prophetic, I hope you're listening to me. I believe that God is going to ask some of you to do something that's really radical and really out of the box and really risky. And you are going to be tempted to settle for a half measure to mitigate your risks. But if you disobey, you will not get the harvest. God has amazing things reserved for simple people. In fact, I would say he has the best things reserved for people that will just say yes and just obey. Radical obedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Selective obedience is disobedience. 
Obedience with an and is disobedience. Obedience with a but is disobedience. There's only one kind of obedience. It's total, complete, unhesitant, everything. We're throwing it all in. That's, the, that's what obedience is, and God will reward that. You know, <clears throat> I was at a... I was at a school of evangelism. We've done these schools all over the world. By the way, how many of you have been at school of evangelism? I see quite a few people. Yeah. So um, I, think it was, I think it was in Germany, this one. And um, there were two young guys. They were obviously like doing a lot of evangelism together. And they, they came up to me and they said, this was years ago. And they said, we know you've, um, you've been all over the world with Evangelist Bonky. And you've seen all these amazing things. They said, give us in one word the most important thing you've learned from Reinhard Bonnke. I love questions like that because it's like, okay, one word. But I knew exactly what the word was. I said, this is what I learned. Obey. Obey. Because I've seen how that, those little, simple, obedient acts, that though they seem very unimpressive in the, in the natural, they reverberate in, in the spirit world. You might think that what you do in your body, in the natural, doesn't count. That it's just about your prayers or about these, these invisible things. No, listen. What you do in your physical body matters. The way you respond. That's why, that's why the, the giving thing matters. Because God watches that. That's a, that's a real activity that indicates what's going on inside of your heart. So, uh, can I give you one little story about this? So... Um, we have our, our headquarters, Christ for All Nations, we're here in Orlando, just, you know, about maybe 30 minutes down the road. And um, our ministry has been here in Orlando for probably almost 20 years now. When I joined the ministry, we were in rented offices. And I tried to talk Reinhardt all the years into buying offices. I said, you know, we're, we're paying all this money in rent every month, paying to somebody else's equity. I said, let's, let's buy a building and, you know, we could put it in our own equity, of our own building. It'll be an investment. And Reinhardt said to me over and over again, you know, Reinhardt's a one-liner. He said, we don't invest in bricks and mortar. We invest in souls. That was his one-liner to me all the time. He said it over and over and over again. So I was very surprised. One day, randomly on a Saturday morning, early in the morning, like 6 o'clock in the morning, I get a phone call. And I see it's Reinhardt. And that's very strange. I mean... First of all, he doesn't call very much. And when he does call, I've never had him call that early in the morning. I thought maybe somebody died. You know, it's one of those. So I answered, hello. He says, hey, Daniel, I'm coming to Orlando right now. He lived two hours away at the time. I'm coming to Orlando right now. I want to meet with you. I said, okay, what, what's going on? He said, the Lord spoke to me. He said, I'll tell you about it when we meet. So I was, you know, what, what could this be? So I get up, I get dressed. We, we meet at a restaurant. And I said, what's going on? He said, The Lord spoke to me this morning, and this is what he said. I have a harvest home for you in Orlando. I said, what does that mean? He said, God is going to give us offices in Orlando. He's going to give them to us. I said, okay, well, two things, Reiner. Number one, we don't have any money. How many of you are really good in figuring out the reasons why it can't work? I have that gift, too. Number one, we don't have any money. In fact, we don't even have enough money for our next crusade, much less money for a building. Number two, it's Saturday morning. 
everything's closed. There's no real estate offices open right now. I said, what do you want me to do? Why did you come all the way to Orlando on a Saturday morning to tell me this? I mean, you could have, I didn't say this to him, but I'm thinking, you could have told me this on the phone. This could have waited until Monday. This is, there's, there's nothing I can do about this right now. You drove two hours to tell me this. I said, and I said to Ryder, what do you want me to do? He said, nothing. He said, I know you can't do anything. I said, then why did you come all the way here? He said, because I feel, listen to this. This is a secret right now. He said, I feel as though the eyes of God are on me. And I want him to see that when he speaks, I jump. That's it. He, he did not come to Orlando for me. He knew God was watching. And he didn't know what to do, but he said, I'm going to do something that shows him that I received that word. And I'm, I'm a witness of what happened over the next less than two months. Every penny that we needed for the purchase of that property came in. And we didn't take one penny out of our general funds. And the money came from people that had never given for other things. It wasn't like we took money out of our crusade fund to do it. We had a guy literally call us and say, I'm flying to Orlando right now. I want to meet with you. I'm not coming for counseling. I'm not coming for prayer. I'm coming as a donor. I want to give you money. And he sat there at the table. He said, I'm a multimillionaire. I want to give you money. What, what can you use it for? Can you imagine that? Literally dropped out of the sky. And people look and they go, oh, it's a miracle. God must really, Reiner Bonke must have a lot of favor on his life. But can I tell you something? It's, it's not just that God likes Ron Arbonke more than you. It's there's some people that when he speaks, they jump. And they get all the prizes. You can be like that, too. You don't have to be super smart to do that. You don't have to go to college for 12 years. Get a PhD in divinity. You can just say, I'm going to obey. And I'm going to obey with all my heart when God speaks. And you have no idea the power that will unleash in your life. But if you won't obey, even if God blesses you like he blessed those guys, you'll lose what he gives you. See? Obedience, that's number two. Now I've got one more, okay? Is it okay if I do one more? So one of the things that you'll discover if you read that, it's really fascinating, is that the first time the net broke at the point when They were trying to pull it into the boat. Listen to this. I don't know if it got caught on a nail or a splinter, but somehow as they're pulling that net full of fish into their boat, it ripped. In the second story, things go very differently. You can read about it there in John 21. In the second story, they they catch this, this haul of fish. And instead of trying to pull it into the boat, Peter jumps out of the boat into the water, and pulls the net in the water up to the shore to Jesus. In the first story, the net broke when they tried to bring the fish into their boat. In the second story, they just took the fish to Jesus. Can I tell you something? If you are going to pull the harvest, the fruit, the souls into your boat, if that's your goal in life and ministry, it is only a matter of time before your net breaks, and you suffer terrible loss and you damage a lot of people in the process. But if you will just determine right here at this stage of your life, no matter where you are right now, if you'll just make a decision, 
my only desire is to take people to Jesus. That's it. I don't, I don't care if they know my name. I don't care if I get rich out of it. I don't care if it turns into a career. I don't, I don't care where it goes. I just want to bring people to him. If you can keep the purity in your life and your ministry, your nets will never break. This is not that difficult. It's, it's not as though you're doomed to failure. If you'll stay humble and you'll stay simple and you'll keep your eyes on him, the devil has nothing he can use on you. You're invincible. You have the Holy Spirit inside of you. Greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world. All you've got to do is keep it simple. You know, I, I was talking to Michael um, years ago about this. Uh, I don't know if you've shared this story, but there was a, a, a guy that he was friends with who um, was an administrator for a very big international ministry in America that, that had a very public scandal. If I said the name, every single person would know. Even if you're not saved, you'll know. It's that, that's how big the ministry was. And um, Michael was talking to this guy, and he said, tell me what went wrong. Do you remember this? And he said... We built a monster that God would not feed, and so we had to figure out how to feed it ourselves. And when I, when I heard him say that, it, it, it broke my heart. I said, Lord, please don't let me build anything that becomes a monster that I have to figure out how to feed. That's not why I signed up. That's not why, I, that's not why as a teenager I came down to an altar like this Cried my heart out because I, I just wanted him. And that's what he saw and that's why he used me. But now if, you, if we let the blessings change us like it happened to David. Remember, David was out there playing his harp and God picked him for that. But then the power corrupted him and he became something else. It was the very gift God gave him that destroyed him. I said, Lord, don't let me go down that path. And I, there was another one. I don't know if it was Michael that shared this with me or somebody else, but it was a, another story like that where there was a guy speaking at one of our very, very prominent Christian universities in America. You'd all know it immediately if I said the name. And there was a guy visiting, Arthur Blessed. How many of you know Arthur Blessed? He used to carry the cross around. I think he's been in every country in the world. He's a dear friend of mine. And Arthur... This was earlier in his ministry, and he was sharing to the student body, and he was weeping as he talked about Jesus. And, and, and the whole audience was moved. And then when he was done, he sat down, and the president of the university got up, and he began to weep. And this is what he said, I used to be like him, and then I became a businessman. Lord, keep us pure. I, I just, this, this, this evening, as I was sitting there in the worship, I just felt the the impression of that scripture and I looked it up because I didn't know where it was found but, but Paul says I, I want to present you as a pure chaste bride to your husband but I'm concerned that you've been deceived like, like the serpent beguiled Eve from the simplicity that is in Christ you see, you see the, the dichotomy there purity is simplicity Mixture is impurity. So here at the end of the story, there's this famous exchange, John 21. Verse 
Jesus says, Peter, do you love me more than these? I want you to notice something. He didn't say, Peter, do you love my sheep? Then feed my sheep. He said, Peter, do you love me? I said it before. I think I said it last week, and I'll say it again. Peter's ministry to the sheep was to be motivated primarily by his love for Christ, not by his love for the sheep. But I think one of the things we miss is that when Jesus said, do you love me more than these, what was he talking about? What do you think it was? These what? It's a fish. I think he pointed to those, that big pile of flopping fish. He said, Peter, do you love me more than your success? Do you love me more than your harvest? Do you love me more than the thing that you find your identity in? He was a fisherman. Every, every fisherman knows catching a haul of fish like that is a very proud moment. Do you love me more than the thing you're proud of? Your accomplishments, your successes, your victories? And I think that the Lord asks every one of us that question. He says, do you love me more than ministry? Do you love me more than big paycheck? Do you love me more than the limelight? Do you love me more than the praise of men? Musicians, come back. Do you love me more than the souls you're going to reach? Because if you can't answer yes to that question, your alignment is off. And, you know, if if you're off by one centimeter here, by the time you get to outer space, you're off by a mile. If your heart is, is aligned incorrectly in this moment, years from now, you'll be so far off the beaten path, you'll look back and say, how did I get here? I created a monster. I became a businessman. How did this happen? My prayer is, Lord, would you keep us pure? Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to me. You came to Jesus' school because you saw purity, because you saw simplicity, because you saw the face of that man. And you said, that's all I want. You could have gone to a big university, but you chose him. Let that be where you stay. Don't ever graduate from that. There's nothing to move on to. Can you stand with me? I just want for us to take a little, a moment. I'm not going to call you forward to the altars. There's two things that we're going to do tonight. But the first one, I think, is very private. It's between you and the Lord. And I think... Just close your eyes, and I want you just to take inventory of your own heart right now. And I want you just to see, has it gotten off track? Have any motives crept in? Any desires, any ulterior motives that are other than him? It's so easy for that to happen. By the way, this isn't something you can fix just with one prayer. This has got to be a daily realignment through your whole life. 
But I want you just to pray. Just say, if there's something that's gotten off track, just repent of it. Repent. That means change your mind. Shift. Say, Lord, I don't want to go down that road. I'm not in this for me. I'm not in this to build a big ministry. I'm not in this to get famous. I'm not in this to be rich. Lord, I'm in this because I love you. That's how I started. That's what drew me. That's all I want. It's just you. Lord, would you keep us in that place of simple love and a desire just to make you happy, just to see a smile on your face. Lord, we love you because you loved us first. We're not trying to earn your love. We serve you out of a response to your love. Keep it pure, Lord. I pray over every person in this place, Lord, that there will be no ripped nets in Jesus' name. Lord, that the harvests you give them, that they will keep. Lord, that when they stand before your throne one day, they will be there with that harvest. Not with a bunch of wood, hay, and stubble that burns and blows away in the wind, but Lord, they will stand before you with gold and silver and precious stones of a life that's been laid down and lived according to your word, a life of obedience, a life of surrender, a life of sacrifice, a life of forgiveness, a life of single-minded commitment to Jesus. Lord, forgive us if we've gotten off track. And realign us tonight in Jesus' name. It can happen in one moment. Just let him realign your heart. Thank you, Lord. There's one more thing I want to talk to you about. And that's the first thing that I was mentioning tonight, which is the relationship thing and the schism thing. You know, in reading the armor of the Lord, I just want to read it to you real quick. In Ephesians chapter 6, I think you all know it. But I always, you know, when I was younger and I was reading this, I always thought to myself, um, I always thought to myself, why is it that all of the armor is forward-facing? Because, you know, if you get stabbed in the back, you'll die just as quickly as if you get stabbed in the front. And... Um, I was reading the armor of the Lord one day, and I said, Lord, why did you design the armor of the Lord this way? Why didn't you create a defense for our back? And I read all the way down to where, um, verse 17, take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And the Lord spoke to me. He said, You've, you stopped reading one verse too soon. See, I thought that's where the armor of the Lord ended. And I read the next verse. It says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And the Lord spoke to me. He said, you are your brother's back armor. See, I, I told you before, we were not meant to do this alone. How many of you know the difference between a warrior and a soldier? We, we always think of ourselves as Warriors. We don't want to be that one person standing there victorious all alone on the battlefield surrounded by the slain corpses of our vanquished enemies. But that's, that's not the Christian picture. We're not warriors. We're soldiers. A soldier by himself 
might as well be a little lost lamb. He needs his comrades. He is part of a unit. They protect him as he protects them. When they move forward in lockstep, they comprise a machine that is unstoppable. And especially in the Roman context that Paul was talking about, he was thinking in this context of a phalanx where every member is locked together and they move together as one unit. And yeah, they don't have back armor because they protect each other. Somebody gets behind them, they're all dead. They lock in and they protect each other. I want you to look at the person next to you and then look at the other one. Just give them a, give them a look. That's your back armor right there. And guess what? You're their back armor. That's what we need in this community. That's what we need in this movement. If you're not from here, listen, take this back with you wherever you're from. I want you to do this right now. I want you to turn to that person, both of them, all of them. And I want you to just tell them, say, I got your back. And I love you. Come on, would you just, would you just put your arm around that person next to you and just pray for them right now? Just pray for them the way that you'd want someone to pray for you. Pray for the strength of God. Pray for them that their faith won't fail. Pray that God will provide for their needs according to his riches and glory. Pray for their prayer life. Pray for their lost loved ones and their family members. Pray for their spouse, for their children. Bless them in Jesus' name. To get daily teaching from Michael and to follow our event schedule around the world, please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Be sure to subscribe to the Jesus Image TV YouTube channel as well. By partnering with Jesus Image, you will help us take the saving and healing power of Jesus to the world. Your giving changes lives forever. For more information, please visit us online at JesusImage.tv or write us at Jesus Image, P.O. Box 950-640, Lake Mary, Florida, 32795. Thank you for your prayers and financial support. Jesus is the answer for every life, everywhere.